Good morning. My name is Michael Wiggs. I am the Associate Pastor for Discipleship here for three months now. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm married to Rachel. We have a two-year-old son, Jonathan, and an eight-month-old daughter, Rosemary. And we are glad to be here. Uh, so if you have a Bible, would you turn to Philippians reading with me? Philippians chapter 2. It can be found on page 981 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Uh, please turn there so you can follow along with me to make sure what I'm saying is trustworthy and true. For God's word is our authority, not me. And as you do that, let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we, are, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, that you're a God who loves us and who cares for us and takes time to tell us about yourself. And we thank you that you've spoken to us through prophets and priests and kings, through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and in your word, the Bible. And we ask, Lord, that you would now speak powerfully by your Spirit, through me, your servant, and to us, your people, that we might hear you, that we might know you, and that we might love you. And this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, how many times have you looked back on your life and thought, ah, now I see it. God was working in my life. The idea that hindsight is 2020 is never more accurate than when you see God's sovereign power working in your life, directing your every step. Even though you made decisions, you took actions, you put a lot of work in to make something happen, you can look back and you can see that God's hand was in every part of it. I know that to be true without a shadow of a doubt of my coming to stand in this pulpit today. A kid who grew up in small town Australia, who never dreamed of becoming a preacher or of living anywhere other than the greatest country in the world, Australia. <laughs> it's only through God's working as I faithfully trusted him that I now live and work in Falls Church, Virginia, a place that I never knew existed for the first 30 years of my life. But I'm so thankful to God that my family and I are here now, that he was directing me, that in every aspect of my life he was bringing us here. If you've just joined us this week, welcome. We're glad you're here. And we've been working our way through the book of Philippians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote while in prison to the Christians in Philippi. We've seen over the past few weeks how Paul is grateful to God for the partnership he has in the gospel with the Philippians. Also that despite his circumstances, Paul's vision for life has been reorganized, reorientated around God's priorities. And last week we heard about what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. As we come to our passage in chapter 2, just before our verses, Paul has instructed the Philippians that they are to have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. The attitude of humbly coming to serve us by dying on the cross for us so that we might one day come before his throne in worship confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, as Paul says, in light of that reality, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus, Paul continues to develop this topic of living a life worthy of the gospel. He does this in three ways that I want to highlight from the text this morning. Firstly, our work. Secondly, salvation's work. And thirdly, God's work. We have work to do, salvation does a work in us, and ultimately God is at work in us. 
So let's look at that first point. What is our work? In verse 12, Paul says, Paul calls the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 again with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is nothing new for the Philippians. They have a good track record of being obedient followers of Jesus. But now that Paul is absent from them, they should continue on in obedience by working out their salvation. Now, in order to work out what Paul means here, we need to be clear of what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that you need to work for your salvation. He's not saying there is work that needs to be done in order to earn your salvation. Because that's not consistent with the rest of this letter or the rest of the New Testament. Paul is writing to those who are already saved. We see this in chapter 1, verse 1, where he calls them saints. Later, he also calls them partners in the gospel and fellow partakers of grace. It's clear that the Philippians have already been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They don't need to work for their salvation. So Paul is not saying that we work for our salvation. What he is saying is that we are to work out our salvation, the salvation that we have already received, which we receive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the preceding verses, Paul presents a great vision of the future, a vision of when all of creation, all of the world and every single person in heaven and on earth will bow before his throne and confess that he is the king. It's a powerful beautiful and joyful vision of our future salvation. A time when everything will be made right, when all people and all things will be redeemed and reconciled to their creator. But our salvation is not only a future hope, it's also a powerful present reality. It's not only something that happens then in the future, it's also something for us right now. Jesus has died for your sins. And you have already been forgiven of your sins. You have been freed from the curse, from the penalty, and from the demands of the law. You have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in you right now. In saying, work out your salvation, Paul is essentially saying, don't wait until that future time, that future day, to start living out your faith. Be Christians now. Let the good news of God's grace begin to infiltrate your life today. Let his grace, by his spirit, change your habits, reorder your desires, change your family agenda, transform your vision for life, modify your priorities for work. Paul says, exercise your salvation right now. In my late teens, my friend and I had a song that really resonated with our brooding personalities, which we would often talk about. It was a song by Colin Hay, uh, and it was called waiting for my real life to begin. We would talk about this feeling we had of, as the song says, waiting for our real life to begin. What that meant, what that real life was, I mean, we had no idea. But we knew that there was something better, something more real in our future. There was something much better than what we were experiencing in that day. 
The problem we faced is that while we were waiting for this real life to begin, we let our actual lives slip through our fingers. We were so convinced that our real life was coming later that we didn't enjoy, we didn't really live in the present. We missed out on a lot of what life had to offer us at that age because we were too busy waiting for something more satisfying to come along. I think this is what Paul is trying to get at, is saying to the Philippians and to you and to me. Don't be so fixated on the goodness of eternal life in the future. That great vision is wonderful vision, but don't be so fixated on that that you miss out on the splendor of eternal life at you, at eternal life at work in you right now. Our real life, our salvation is now, is today. So spiritually exercise your faith. Work it out, as Paul says. And this is to be done with fear and trembling. Not because we need to be afraid of God's judgment or his wrath. Jesus has taken upon that on himself and dealt with that for us. But because such respect and seriousness are entirely appropriate when we're talking about obedience to the one true and living God. Well, what does that look like for you and for me? What does it mean for our salvation to be worked out in us? Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us to our own devices to try and figure it out for ourselves. He explains it in verses 14 and, six, and through 16. So let's look at those verses again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Did you catch it there? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big, Paul. Just the thought of that kind of makes me want to grumble. I mean, all things, really, Paul? What about taxes or final exams or family gatherings or meaningless meetings that really could have just been an email? Surely you don't mean the DMV. No, all things, Paul says. Well, this all-encompassing call to obedience shows us that the grace of God is not just meant for one part of our lives. Our salvation is meant to be worked out, to be exercised in every area of our lives. In particular, Paul is talking about church unity here. And he singles out grumbling and disputing as he focuses in on the body of Christ in Philippi. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're probably thinking to yourself, Paul, that is an impossible task. Churches have division over any number of things. The color of the carpet, the style of music, the translation of the Bible they use, just to name a few, and I'm sure you've got your own examples in your own life. And just to be clear here, this doesn't mean that we don't disagree on things. Disagreement can be healthy. And it's perfectly fine to disagree on the things that are of lesser importance. But what Paul has in mind here is the grumbling and disputing that causes dissension and division. It takes the form of whispering complaints, talking negatively about someone behind their back, and general negative murmur. Paul gives the reason for this instruction in verse 15, where he says that we, the way that we speak about each other and to each other 
directly impacts our witness to the outside world. It's not just the way that we act towards others, outsiders, but the way that we relate to each other in here, which has an influence on our witness to the world outside. Our unity or our division can make us shine brighter or dimmer to those around us. Now Paul is thinking here, he's he's alluding here to the Israelites who were grumbling in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses speaks to the Israelites and tells them that because of their grumbling in the wilderness, they have become blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. God's chosen people, the Israelites, had become slaves in Egypt, which was not the land that God had promised to them. And so they cried out to God and he rescued them, bringing them from the Red Sea, saving them from the Egyptian army, But despite this salvation, despite God's amazing work in their lives of saving them, which echoes throughout the rest of the Bible, despite God's miraculous intervention, the Israelites begin to grumble because they don't trust that God is with them as they're in the wilderness journeying towards the promised land. They grumble and they dispute against Moses, saying, why did you bring us out here? Was it to kill us? Life was so much better when we were slaves in Egypt. At least we had food to eat. Now, I don't need to be in the wilderness for any amount of time to face the same temptation to grumble against God that they faced. I can't even count the amount of times that I caught myself grumbling this week or this morning as Paul's words rumbled through my head. So how do we guard against grumbling and disputing? How do we stay blameless and innocent? Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. How do we shine as lights in the world? Well, Paul explains it for us in verse 16. By holding fast to the word of life. Just like we saw last week, our best offense comes through having a good defense. By holding firmly to the truth of the gospel, the the word that brings life. We do this through praying to God and reading his word, the Bible. This is why we read and preach the Bible every week. This is why we have small groups throughout the week that gather around God's word. If you haven't already, I would encourage you to join one. I'd also encourage you to find a mentor or a friend that you can read the Bible and pray with one-to-one. And then as you are able, make time to read the Bible and pray to God by yourself. Now that sounds like a lot, and you might not be able to do all of it, but it's vitally important for your spiritual health and for the spiritual health of this body, that you hold firm to the word of life. This is salvation's work in our lives, when through conviction and repentance we turn away from grumbling and disputing, turning away from evil, turning away from those things that cause division, and we turn to Christ, having our hearts and our minds fixed on him, holding fast to him. The good news of all of this is back in verses 12 and 13. Let's listen to those verses again, starting halfway through verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The life of Christian obedience is not something we do in our own strength. It happens by the sovereign power of God working in us. Paul is not saying, you know, God has played his part, now it's all up to you to take over. He's not saying, Okay, you can take it from here as though it all depends on you. But he's also not saying, 
Look, God has got it all sorted out. You can just sit back, relax, kick up your feet, and enjoy your ride to eternal bliss. Now Paul says, work out your own salvation because God is the one who is working in us. He works in us at every level, in every part of our being. It is God all the way down. His power and our responsibility are not at odds with one another. Paul has no problem with mentioning them in the same sentence. God's work in our lives is an incentive to press on, to put our heads down and to work out what God has already worked in us by his Holy Spirit. This is such good news to hear, isn't it? That the creator of all things in heaven and on earth is at work in me. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within me and is laboring in every area of my life. Notice the work that he's doing in us. He's working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is not forming me into the best version of what I think of myself. He's not coming alongside my will and my desires and thinking to himself, you know what, you want to be rich and famous? Well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let me, ha- let me, let me make that happen for you. God is not working for the desires of our own hearts. But he is reshaping, he is reworking our will so that our hearts would be more and more like him. And as he does this work, we become less divisive. We become more united with one another and we shine ever more brightly as lights in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have much work to do that salvation might be worked out among us. But the good news is that God is the one who is powerfully at work in us by his spirit to will and to work for his good pleasure. So my prayer for us this day is that God would indeed do this work in me and in you. That each one of us might work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That our lives might be more and more shaped into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite songs says it much better than I ever could. Uh, You might know it. It's called Take My Life and Let It Be. It's a song written in the 1800s by Francis R. Havergal, and the last two verses say this. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Father, we ask that it would be so in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would work powerfully by your spirit, that our lives and our hearts and our minds would be shaped ever more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this we ask through his name. Amen.